Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Halton is battling to stay in stage three. We talk to Mayor Marianne Mead Ward from the city of Burlington. Some concerns over vaccinations and the companies that are producing them and their relationship with the government. And Restaurants Canada is releasing a new campaign to keep the doors open, even during the pandemic. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Hi, I'm Alicia Thompson, Scott's daughter. It's the tag team intro. Happy Monday, everyone. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Wow, look at that stereo. I think they want something. <laughs> They're trying to butter me up. Uh, good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Happy Monday to you. Uh, feel free to uh, jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Uh, you'll find the podcast edition of the commentary waiting for you on Facebook and Twitter. You can send us a note via the website. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Uh, lots going on today. We will touch on uh, the possibility that uh, not only Halton but Durham could also uh, move into hotspot status, which basically would put those regions back into a modified version of Stage 2, like we have seen in Toronto, Peel, York, and Ottawa. And uh, obviously, over the course of the weekend, uh, numbers uh, hitting over that um, the threshold of a thousand new cases. Uh, good news, I guess, if you could look at the sunny side of this: um, 851 new cases today. So that certainly has leveled off and got back down before or below rather uh, 1,000 cases. And obviously, uh, politicians, uh, MPPs, and mayors in Halton. Uh, making sure that uh, this is the right call before uh, they, in fact, go back into stage two. Today, during the news conference, the daily news conference, uh, the premier looks like he's put that on hold as things seem to be stabilizing. Uh, but again, uh, the the rumor was that today they were supposed to, those regions were supposed to go back into a modified version of stage two. Uh, looks like a, a reprieve for uh, a bit of time anyway. Let's bring in Marianne Mead Ward, Mayor City of Burlington, and is with us now. Marianne, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Very well, thanks. Staying healthy, that's what matters. I know, I hear you, I hear you. So before the week, uh, before the weekend, as we mentioned, uh, numbers were going up and, and we started to uh, hear rumblings that Durham and Halton could be going uh, back into a modified uh, version of Stage 2 uh, over the course of the weekend, certainly by Monday, then obviously things have changed. Any idea what happened, how we've taken another look at this? Well, we asked the uh, the medical officer of health, uh, Dr. Williams, as well as the premier, to look at the health evidence. Our numbers, our picture is very different than the hotspots, and it didn't warrant, based on the evidence, a, a rollback. And that was our simple message, is just have a look. Here's everything we know about the situation on the ground for you to consider, and we're really glad that they did. They looked at the science, they looked at the data, and uh, have pushed pause. I know we're not out of the woods yet, we got to continue to do our part to keep those numbers uh, going in the right direction, which is down, and they are. Uh, so it's good news for today, and we have to keep uh, being vigilant for sure. So where was the local medical officer of health on this? Uh, from what we understand, they were recommending going into a, a modified stage two. Is that accurate? 
Well, our medical officer of health uh, issued some uh, recommendations for activities to uh, to pause, and so we we actually did that. So at the city of Burlington, our medical officer of health said uh, you should cancel fitness classes, cancel gameplay. We voluntarily took those measures so that we wouldn't get rolled back into uh, stage two. So we are working very closely with our medical officer of health and working closely to follow uh, the recommendations that she makes and, uh, and, and also communicating to Dr. Williams and the premier that, uh, based on the criteria that is, that we understand are being used, we don't need it for a rollback, for a blanket rollback. We're advocating a targeted approach. So she is happy that, um, a, at, at this point anyway, uh, Halton will not be moving into a modified stage two. Well, I, I can't speak for a medical officer of health. I think you, you would need to talk with her. No, but, but I'm just trying to figure out. Obviously, there's difference of opinions here. So uh, uh, from what we understand initially, they were, you know, she was very concerned about all of this and, and was leaning towards um, obviously rolling things back. That hasn't happened. So uh, it seems to be that's where, where the decision, uh, that's where there became two different opinions on this. Well, we have said we, we want a targeted approach. So we're not opposed to closures where there is evidence that the activity is at high risk, that there has been demonstrated uh, transmission there, and not to treat all businesses with the same brush. Our businesses have been working for months now, uh, spending thousands of dollars to make their establishment safe for workers and for, uh, for customers, and it's working. So we're saying look at where the areas of transmission are and focus your uh, recommendations on that, and that's exactly what the medical officer of health did, and that is exactly what we did at the City of Burlington uh, when we shut down game play in our indoor and outdoor facilities and we ended our fitness classes. So, so we are taking that, those recommendations and that advice very seriously. We're taking some flack for that, but we hope that this will keep us out of stage two. And that's exactly why we did it. And uh, the numbers are starting to trend in the right direction. So it's good news. So at the end of the day, uh, what will keep uh, the region where it is? What will keep the, uh, the modifications going back into stage two at bay? We have to see those, uh, the new infection rates continue to go down. They're kind of hovering between 20 and 30 right now, but they are going down. And our active case rate, if you look a couple of weeks ago at the peak, was uh, over 90. We're now hovering around 80, so it's going in the right direction. We have lots of hospital capacity, including a 91-bed pandemic response unit at Joseph Brandt, which we have thankfully never needed, but we have surge capacity. So when you look at uh, any number of indicators from a health standpoint, from a science standpoint, we simply don't meet the threshold for a blanket closure. And that was our message is we want to make sure that, that we're all on the same page here, looking at the same criteria, and, uh, and we don't warrant a rollback. And uh, for now, we, we've all agreed with that. And, and so we're, uh, you know, but, but we have to be vigilant. Uh, we're not out of the woods with this pandemic, and we want to make sure the numbers don't start to creep back up again. And I guess at the end of the day, that's the criteria. If the numbers start to creep up, then you've got to reexamine uh, perhaps closures again. Is that accurate? Well, and even even if they start to creep up, we are asking, and our and our public and our businesses for sure are asking for measures to be directly targeted to the areas of greatest risk. So, for example, when it was shown early in uh, in the fall with the with the second wave that. 
social gatherings, backyard parties, those were the source of significant spread. And the premier and the medical officer of health said, we're reducing those numbers. That was exactly the right move. It was targeted. It was based on evidence. And so that is what we're asking for going forward before any decisions are made to close or even to reopen that it be based on these areas are not an area of identified risk based on the science and the data that we have. To look at it through uh, an evidence-based lens. Uh, that being said, if numbers start to spike up, what do you target? Well, in Halton, a lot of our source of, uh, of the big numbers has been, unfortunately, from long-term care homes. Uh, and so additional measures have been put in place for weeks now, to restrict uh, going in and out of long-term care homes. That's, so it's, it's not just looking at an aggregate number. It's looking at where where is the spike coming from and taking targeted measures to address that. And that is exactly what has happened uh, in the last few weeks. And that was, we, you know, we want to make sure that that continues to be a pro- the approach. Don't punish every business uh, because the numbers are going up, understand what's making them go up. And that, that requires, uh, obviously, um, as, mu- as much testing as we can do and contact tracing. So we know that information. Uh, how close is Halton? Uh, obviously, uh, you know, it's a numbers game. And, and as you said, there's lots of, of factors involved here as well. But, but obviously, uh, the premier alluded that it's, it's close here and obviously is something that, that has to be monitored. Any idea how close it is? Well, if you look at, if you look at our numbers compared to the hotspots, we're not even in the same ballpark. Uh, the numbers per uh, per hundred thousand uh, daily were less than half. We we are still hovering around thirty uh, per hundred thousand, whereas the provincial average is is forty, and the hotspots are are well above that. So we we simply don't meet the uh, the, the criteria that the other hotspots are. I think we're being lumped in with you know Greater Toronto area, and when people see numbers spiking and see it's happening in Toronto and Peel assume that's the same in Halton or even Durham uh, and beyond, and it simply isn't the same. And even though we're geographically close, our health indicators are very different. And, and so we're looking, we're asking the decision makers to take a very precise, targeted, evidence-based look at this rather than sort of a blanket rollback for everybody. How concerned are you, Marianne, with people moving from region to region? Well, uh, we, myself and the, uh, the local MPP, Jane McKenna, did ask residents from the hot spots to put a pause on uh, visiting uh, certainly our gyms uh, and, and our businesses. It defeats the purpose of why there's a lockdown. And in fact, uh, we received a letter yesterday from one of the major gyms uh, in, uh, in the greater Toronto area saying they had suspended travel membership. So they're really trying to do their part because they understand if there's a lockdown because of this travel, then it then it affects every one of their businesses. So they are starting to uh, to try to voluntarily contain that discretionary travel. Obviously, if you have to travel for work, um, you know, that makes total sense. But it's also worth remembering that we've been beside Toronto and Peel throughout this pandemic. And Mm. we have had travel throughout this pandemic and we are still and have been throughout this pandemic well below their numbers. 
So it says something about the extra precautions, I guess, the voluntary compliance with the regulations that our residents here in Halton have uh, have adopted. And it's kudos to them. Uh, you can have the, all the legislation you want, but people have to follow it. And, and they are here in Halton. And I think that's why, again, throughout this pandemic and despite travel throughout the pandemic, our numbers have been lower and still are lower. Uh, last question, Mayor. How concerned are you about that fatigue, especially as we head into a winter? You know, these are challenging and unprecedented times for everyone. And I know that folks will, uh, in, in Halton, they will, they will do what we ask. Uh, they, are, they are very willing to do their part. They see that we are in it together, but they're asking for us to justify it. And, uh, you know, they're not, I think maybe early in the pandemic, it was good enough to simply say, well, uh, this is what we think is the right course of action. Now they're saying, uh, show me the evidence. Show me the data. And I think that's absolutely reasonable. It's a higher threshold that we will all have to uh, adhere to, that we will have to demonstrate a link between a closure and evidence that that is a potential or has been a source of spread. And, and I think that's a, that's a good conversation. It's a reasonable conversation. And if we can demonstrate that, I know that our public will do the right thing, as they have throughout this. Uh, they're simply asking for that information. Marianne Mead-Ward has been with us, Mayor, City of Burlington, and staying in Stage 3 in Halton and in Durham as well. Marianne, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, You might remember we talked about a story a few weeks back in regard to a very large mansion up in uh, York Region uh, that was busted and it turned out to be a casino sort of thing, a legal gaming house, what have you. Um, and uh, many were surprised at just the the scale and the size of of this operation. Well, suspects in the alleged illegal Markham Casino uh, now have turned out to be linked to the same sort of situation in British Columbia uh, casinos. And, of course, let's bring in Sam Cooper, a national online journalist, investigative reporter with Global News, and uh, his latest suspects in alleged Markham illegal casino mansion linked to BC casino suspects. And joining us now is Sam Cooper. Sam, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing well, thanks. Talk a little bit about the scale of this operation that we saw up in Markham, because I think a lot of people will just uh, be stunned at how large this was. Absolutely. Uh, the visual on, on this bust is we have a 53-room mansion, marble floors, imposing columns, and uh, really, this this architecture was familiar to my investigations in Vancouver and Richmond related to underground casinos. So uh, that's what started uh, our probe of, you know, was there a connection here to Markham and, and what we're seeing in British Columbia? The money laundering inquiry is well underway again today. And absolutely, the scale is the key word here. So at that Markham mansion, the police believe every single room was used for gaming, illegal gaming. Uh, there were 11 weapons seized. And another shocking factor is uh, the alleged mastermind here. He appears to be a, a large-scale real estate developer, many companies in Canada, a lot of assets. And uh, the allegations are that human trafficking, potential uh, prostitution, uh, police are looking at whether drug money laundering 
is part of this. And uh, my investigation showed that, indeed, the, the transnational organized crime networks that are being probed uh, in B.C. are believed to be very active in Markham, connected to the ones in B.C., and, of course, uh, from what my investigations have shown, based in and in some way protected within China. So this is a very, a very big story. It has, uh, it looks like, political implications internationally. And when you ask questions about how are homes getting uh, uh, pumped up to such prices and uh, how can a fentanyl overdose death be uh, rocking some portions of Canada, these, uh, these casinos appear to be part of the answer. How long was this operation in Markham going on? Any idea? I mean, it just how can something of this scale go on without being noticed, without red flags going up? Well, my sources say that with a crackdown on uh, the money laundering in B.C. government casinos, uh, so we're talking about transactions that were not uncommon, $800,000 cash passing, uh, passing the cash cages, just incredible stuff in B.C. When, uh, when, when this was exposed, uh, the cash transactions fall in B.C., but they pour into underground casinos and especially into Ontario is, is what our sources are saying. So this particular 53-room mansion appears to have been uh, running just for, uh, you know, not more than six months. So it, it looks like police got tipped off uh, pretty soon. And uh, I believe that surveillance was underway uh, from May on that particular operation. But uh, the police say that they were looking at any number of illegal underground gambling dens. Of course, not all of that size. This was a, a very high-end operation that my sources say it's reported that uh, high-level state officials from China, tycoons, were traveling in to gamble there. Shark's fin soup was on the menu, allegedly. Mm. Again, uh, with connectivity, as my sources would say, internationally. So uh, all we can really say to boil it down is that when you crack down on large-scale money laundering in D.C., it appears that it spreads uh, across Canada. It's like trying to play whack-a-mole, trying to catch all these locations. So these casinos are basically used to launder drug money from the profits of fentanyl. Absolutely. Police believe that's the case, and they also say that these casinos are extremely profitable. Uh, they, they're believed to produce money to fund the drug trade, to fund human trafficking, and to, to fund prostitution businesses. Not only that, indications of uh, weapons trafficking, potentially, as I've seen in British Columbia, illegal gaming junkets, very related, allegedly, to uh, uh, these casino money laundering junkets for offshore high rollers. So it's just, a, a, as one source would say, you just have a huge hairball of, uh, of crime and politics connected. And uh, you really see it, uh, it when you see very wealthy people that appear to be politically connected coming to gamble at locations like this one in Markham. Is this raising any flags politically, uh, especially with the relationship that some of these business tycoons, as you ha uh, put it, uh, uh, their relationship to China? My understanding is that uh, Canada, in relation to our Western, uh, what we call intelligence allies, that would be United States and Australia included, Canada is is extremely susceptible to this kind of what it's called transnational organized crime, potentially with connections to what's called uh, state actors in, in hostile nations. Canada doesn't have much of a, a counterpunch 
it doesn't have much of a counter uh, intelligence uh, uh, capacity to look at whether, you know, there could be espionage rolled into these organized crime networks that are international. But I'm told that there are, you know, some of my sources certainly are, are, are watching. They're taking this very seriously. And uh, there's at least some indication that at, at higher levels in government, people may be starting to pay attention. But uh, again, you look at all the, the connectivity of the people in the casinos making political donations across Canada. That's one of the aspects of my story that I don't think anyone else is really looking at. And I, I'm really starting to probe that. Hmm. Uh, any fallout from this event, from the from this uh, these arrests in regard to this Markham Casino? Have we heard the last of this? Because again, you see these grand uh, uh, clandestine uh, uh, efforts, and then you know police move in, and we we don't hear much about it. Will we hear more much about this investigation? We're we're told that the the York Regional Police have an ongoing investigation. I understand that uh, they have many, many documents uh, in in foreign languages to translate. There's indications of cryptocurrency transactions. I understand that uh, police, including federal police, will be very interested in and looking at whether those international connections are here. So... uh, Let's put it this way. At this point, it's an impressive amount of arrests and charges we've seen from a regional police force. The investigation's going on, and uh, I know that uh, Canada's intelligence allies, especially in the Australia and, and United States, various agencies, will be watching this very closely. Sam Cooper has been with us, national online journalist, investigative reporter with Global News, and you can read his article on our website now. Uh, suspects and alleged uh, illegal Markham Casino leaked to uh, uh, other suspects in the British Columbia industry as well, and these uh, facilities being used to uh, launder money. Sam, uh, thanks again for all the time and insight. Much appreciated. Great work. Be well. Thank you. Let's move on and talk about something that, uh, you know, we really haven't talked about in a long time, uh, certainly since uh, around the time of, of the passing, the death of uh, George Floyd in, at, at the hands of police and what happened in the United States, um, and certainly the fallout from that and and, um, and the voice that, that then transpired. And people of all races, all colors, all, all stripes, uh, asking for justice, wanting to know uh, how this could be fixed and, and how we could move forward. Many uh, talked about defunding the police and taking money away from police departments and putting it uh, into other sort of social programs that take uh, pressure off the police to handle these sorts of incidents. Um, you know, it, it's odd because I think year after year we're asking police departments to do more and more and more, whether it's uh, in regard to mental illness, whether it's in regard to cybersecurity, whether it's in regard to terrorism, what have you. Um, and again, asking them to do things that perhaps not qualified for, uh, yet can we ask them to do things like that and then defund the police as well? Where is our attitude on this, especially here in Canada? Uh, let's bring in Dave Krasinski, Research Director, Angus Reed. They have done a poll on all of this uh, and talking about uh, the 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 topic of cutting uh, police budgets and defunding the police or where does the money go dave krasinski is with us now dave thanks for the time i hope you're doing well i am thanks for having me so how much is this still in the public psyche obviously it's been a while since uh the george floyd death and this was all in the headlines are, are we still talking about it are we still thinking about this 
Yeah, I think this is one of those issues that there there does seem to be kind of an ongoing example at any given time across the country. I think the latest of which being um, the lobster fishery uh, incidents out in, in Nova Scotia. I have a lot of people talking about the RCMP's commitment to, you know, preserving Indigenous rights. There's a quite a, a high intensity debate going on right now about what those rights are and and you know it's it's interesting um just to watch though you've got four ministers in in canada members of the federal government who came out and said that they they thought the rcmp have, have kind of failed have done a poor job um out in nova scotia and we've also got um a little bit closer to to where you all are um in ottawa the uh the police incident with um uh, Abdira, I don't want to pronounce his name incorrectly, but Abdira Manabdi, the uh, Somali uh, Canadian who who was killed, um, it, that that also kind of generating headlines. People are are, are upset about um, the resolution of that case. So these these things don't really go away, and I think um, people do perceive this as as quite a high profile problem. Um, we we saw. I don't know if if you and I talked about it, but in part one of this report, we found that. People really have quite uh, favorable views of their own police departments and their interactions are quite favorable. But when they take a step back, they do seem to see some uh, systemic issues. And and there is a sense that there's a lack of accountability and there is a problem in Canada with treatment of uh, Indigenous, Black and other uh, visible minority Canadians. Uh, obviously, people are starting to realize there is a problem here. There is an issue here. The solution, though, comes in various forms. Uh, defund the police is one example of that. Um, how do people break that down? Because, again, um, you know, it's a good catchphrase. It, you know, it, it certainly gets headlines, gets people's attention. But what does it actually mean? And are people aware of that? Yeah, you know, it, it resonates differently in, in different parts of the country as well. You know, if you look at there's a really interesting story that the Globe and Mail did that compared some of the police budgets just by percentage of uh, the municipal budget. And you've got places like in Surrey, uh, out in B.C., 29% of, of uh, the municipal budget. And in Winnipeg, it's 27%. In Hamilton, it's just 9%. And the same, same in Toronto. Um, so those calls are received differently. Um, when you look at people's desire to... Uh, we took the, the term defunding out and just said, you know, based on what you know about the police budget in your community, what do you think about it? Um, most people do say um, that it's about right. That's the most common response. Thirty-eight percent of Canadians don't really have a problem with it. Uh, one quarter, though, do say that they would like to see the police budget reduced. Uh, that jumps to thirty-eight percent in in the GTA, and it's thirty-two percent in Ontario overall. Um, and about one in five Canadians just don't really know at all what the police budget in their city is. Um, so I think those are important elements of the conversation. And much of it, too, is to dig a little bit deeper into what people are asking. You know, there are people who do want to abolish the police as an institution, but a lot of people who uh, believe in the kind of hashtag defund the police are those who would like to see the budget shifted to uh, just more what they see as, as more socially responsible ways to, to take on problems. Um, I think in policing communities that that concept can be a little bit nebulous and, and there's some pushback in that, you know, police enter very dangerous situations and it doesn't always, um, there's not always a benefit to have 
you know, in some cases, a social worker on site for certain calls. But it, it might make sense to do that in situations where you're dealing with somebody who's having a mental health problem. Um, and there are places that have had some success with that. So there, there are different uh, opinions. But yeah, one in four say that they would they would reduce police budgets. Uh, you know, 38% say that they're fine. And when you ask that question of whether they should be shifted to either more police presence um, or social welfare solutions, Canadians lean pretty heavily toward the so- social welfare solutions um, insofar as that's possible to do. So are we getting alternatives? Because, again, you know, defund the police, um, you know, and I'm going to extremes here, uh, get rid of them, do this, come up with a different situation, a different uh, organization. What is, are we hearing as much about whatever the alternative is, as much as defund the police? Not really. I think one of the things that you have a a difficult time with is that um, it's very easy to get people to engage with um, a catchphrase or or a, mm-hmm. a mantra, but it is hard to get people to engage with the ideas that underpin that. Um, we see that a lot with just the term Black Lives Matter and, and people kind of feeling the need to counter that sometimes with their own terms. Uh, we see that a lot in the United States, a little bit more than in Canada. Um, we also saw it with Idle No More a few years ago with Indigenous people speaking up and saying that they, they wanted to um, improve various aspects of life in Canada. And, and oftentimes people either misperceive that or aren't really willing to engage it. And we do see that, you know, people, people don't love the, the, the concept of defund the police, but when you dig a little bit deeper and you do look at some of these concepts, they do appear to agree with a lot of the, the kind of underpinnings of, of kind of the ideology of it, you know, 67% of Canadians say that they think the police um, are too quick to use force to solve problems. So I think that's something that people who are looking for reform want to address. Um, the idea that police funding could be reallocated to some some place, uh, areas that might be a little bit less kind of confrontationally based is very popular in Canada. Um, but yeah, it, it is tough to kind of get uh, use those, those catchphrases that get immediately politicized um, and use those to kind of communicate. Um, it's harder to have a nuanced conversation, which, you know, our um, the survey does does tend to show a, a lot of those kind of nuanced conversations. So I encourage people to check it out if they're wondering if you kind of cut through some of it, what you get to, because Canadians do have really interesting um, relationships with their police and, and kind of competing views about what to do and, and what the problems are. Dave Korzynski has been with us, Research Director, Angus Reid Institute, uh, weighing and taking Canada's temperature on the police and defunding the police or alternate forms of thereabouts. Dave, thanks for the time. As always, much appreciated. Be well. No problem. Uh, You all too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, medical doctor, health policy expert. Doctor, good to hear you. Good to see you again. Uh, Thanks for taking the time to join us. Much appreciated. Hope you're doing well. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me. All right. Uh, let's talk about vaccines. Uh, some news over the weekend uh, in in regard to Oxford's vaccine that uh, they are seeing some positive immune responses. Give us, uh, in in layperson's terms, give us a, a rough idea of where we are now with this. There are some disturbing news from Pfizer about uh, the government's uh, disclosing of the deal with the, uh, the, the vaccine sort of uh, recruitment, procurement for it. 
Uh, that's disturbing. That's the big, I think, headline about vaccine and where we are in Canada. Remember, we talked earlier on your show that, you know, Canada, the federal government is being very aggressive in securing deals with big manufacturers to ensure that all Canadians have access to a vaccine when it is safe and, and verified safe by Health Canada for our use. When we jeopardize this business dealings of with, with pharmaceutical companies, the question becomes, can we still secure it at a competitive price and can we secure enough of that vaccine? I think that's the number one big headline when it comes to vaccine. The other one is what the World Health Organization is raising the alarm on, which is vaccine nationalism. And this idea that some countries are becoming super competitive in securing vaccines at the price or at the cost of other countries being able to secure them. So this is a big word in health policy we call equity, ensuring that everybody has reasonable uh, access to a vaccine when they need it. Uh, and so that's going to be something we need to watch very closely for. I think the bottom line, simple, simply put, you know, vaccine conversation will continue to have, a must continue to have, but our access as average Canadians, as, as citizens of Canada, to get a hold of this vaccine I don't suspect that will happen until much later in 2021. And so right now we're paying very close attention to the clinical trials, uh, watching if they are safe and effective. And then it's up to Health Canada to make that decision whether Canadians can have access to it and when they will have access to it. As you mentioned, getting back to you to, to the first uh, story in, ra- in regard to Pfizer on on vaccines, as you mentioned, um, lots of uh, uh, challenges put out there to various companies to try to come up with with something and, and making sure we have enough of it when this is in, in fact developed. Uh, obviously, there's you know a parliamentary process here. There's politics involved, and opposition are asking for. Um, uh, accountability as uh, as I guess they're supposed to do so uh, with that how why is Pfizer concerned why would drug companies be concerned uh, that that opposition is is questioning this or, or or looking to see numbers how would that negatively impact the drug company well Pfizer's co- co- concerned about its competitive edge it's concerned that if uh, the government decides to release that information that they will also release how the vaccine was developed, how they're manufacturing it, and how they're trying to distribute it. And that's considered private business confidential information, which makes them a competitive pharmaceutical companies. I think that is where their concern is coming from. And and Scott, I I suspect that other pharmaceutical companies that we are in contracts with or in negotiations with will also raise similar concerns. We only have heard of Pfizer so far, but don't be surprised if any time today or tomorrow we will hear of the other companies raising similar concerns if it does go forward. And I think, you know, it's a very fine balance. How much do you want to be transparent in that deal while still protecting, uh, ensuring that we have a deal in place? You know, I teach a whole entire course called Politics of Pandemics, and this is yet another example where politics is involved in policy development. Uh, Would this necessarily happen? I mean, uh, if uh, politicians are looking for the finances and, and, you know, maybe there's a a procurement process there or a bidding process that maybe isn't our business or the companies don't want it to be our business. But as far as, you know, secrets and formulas and, and, and that sort of thing, that would be protected, would it not? Well, it all depends on how the hearing goes, right? And I think this is why the federal government raised the alarm today saying that any such conversation with, which mandates the government to release all details of the contract will jeopardize this contract and other pharmaceutical uh, vaccine procurement efforts. So I think they're, they're just trying to be careful about like, uh, what the consequences might be if such information is being released. And it makes you wonder exactly what is in that contract. Uh, why is Pfizer raising the alarm on this? And it's probably, from what I suspect, 
from a health policy perspective, it is the dealing of the manufacturing the vaccine and the, the nuances of the vaccine. We know that each one of those suppliers actually has a different uh, sort of version, if you might want to call it, or a template or a draft of vaccine. And each one of those companies has developed their own formula of how they plan to manufacture it and distribute it. And they probably want to keep that a secret for, the, for now. I think I might have asked you this before, but uh, this is something that, that's that's interesting, fascinating, that all of these different companies are all working on a, a vaccine for the same virus, yet they all may be different in some way. Um, in the end, do they all end up together? Do they take the good portions out of some, drop the negatives of others? Uh, what happens over time? That's a great question that we're all trying to figure out at the moment. So the, the, having different versions of the vaccine is normal. I mean, there's, the, you know, they're all trying to target different components of the virus to deactivate it for simple words, right? Like they're all trying to get at the same end goal. And the end goal is to neutralize the virus. Uh, so it doesn't have the effect on the human body. That is the end goal. How they go about doing it, each one of those companies is developing an alternative format, as you call it, or guide. Um, I guess the best example to say is that, you know, uh, Toyota, uh, Mercedes, all those car companies, the end goal is to have a car that you can drive. Right. But how they manufacture the car is different. And it's the right. same analogy. And this is why companies are so protective over the, how they're developing this vaccine, because they don't want it out until they're proven. So uh, for us, I think for, for our sake, what we really care about is, is it safe? And is there any long term side effects? And we're going to look at Health Canada for that guidance. How concerned are you over distribution? Once this does become available, is this going to be a concern? Are, are people going to be fighting over this? Maybe well, not necessarily in developed countries, but in other parts of the world. Prime Minister Trudeau has made it very clear in his latest press conference that you know priority will be given to seniors, uh, healthcare workers, and our vulnerable populations first and foremost. They'll have uh, access to it first, which makes sense from, an, from a perspective that those individuals are the most vulnerable and probably will need it the most. Uh, and the soonest. Uh, having said that, just because we, we want to give it to individuals or we have enough supply of it, the, the, from a health policy perspective, Scott, the big issue now is how many people will actually get vaccinated? Yeah. Uh, are you willing, uh, I'm not putting you on the spot, Scott, but mm -hmm. are you willing to go get vaccinated if the vaccine is, becomes available tomorrow? That's a question we're all trying to figure out now. How many Canadians are, will go to get the vaccine when it is available? Well, again, we, we certainly know the conversation around vaccination uh, prior to this pandemic. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if that's changed at all and whether people look at that the same way they do a flu shot. I mean, it, it's the same sort of thing. For example, will there be uh, will this be part of the school program? Will all the kids get a shot of this eventually? Yeah, this is, a, this is all great indications for a further policy discourse around how we're going to actually distribute the vaccine. So there is a question about whether we're going to mandate it for school children. I don't think anybody is engaging that discussion yet. I think right now the focus on do we each actually have a safe vaccine in place and do we have enough of it for, the for everybody in Canada? And I think the government is working aggressively in trying to secure enough of the vaccine for everybody in Canada. And we've heard reports that it's going to be not just one dose, they're trying to secure two doses for everybody involved. Dr. Ahmad Khalid has been with us, medical doctor and health policy expert, talking about vaccines and where we are uh, right now in the second wave of COVID-19. Ahmad, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. 
Same to you, Scott. Thank you. Uh, Halton and Durham, uh, many thought that they were heading back into a modified version of Stage 2 today. That did not happen. Uh, reprieve for both. And uh, it's fascinating because we have a conservative government that's saying, no, no, close things down. Uh, we have to look at your health. And then we have uh, other politicians, some conservative and also some liberal-minded, that want businesses open, which is uh, kind of opposite. The liberals are acting like conservatives. The conservatives are acting like liberals. Bizarre. And again, at the end of the day, um, this was all information from the local a medical officer in Halton who was on board moving back into restrictions. So really, it's, you know, talk to the medical officer of health before you start getting the premier on the phone, I would think. Anyway, uh, Halton has a reprieve and uh, hopefully can stay there in stage three uh, with the rest of us. All right, let's move on. It is, uh, it's 2.35 and, you know, restaurants, speaking of, of uh, staying open and such, obviously the hospita- hospitality in- industry has taken a beating during COVID-19 uh, as, uh, you know, obviously restricted and very much in what they can do, especially with indoor dining. And we're moving into Christmas, sorry, the Christmas season and the holiday season, the winter months. Obviously, the patios uh, aren't going to be as uh, viable as they once were. Uh, Restaurants Canada is releasing a new campaign to keep the doors open. Uh, for restaurants during the pandemic. To talk more about all of this, James Ryland is with us, Vice President, Central Canada of Restaurants Canada, and is with us now. James, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing well, Scott. How are you? I'm doing fine, thanks. So tell us about this uh, campaign, and, and what's your message here? Well, our message basically is to remind people how much restaurants mean to them, uh, how much they mean to their daily life, how much they mean to the community, and uh Try and imagine what it would be if, if those restaurants that you rely on uh, weren't there anymore. So uh, now, obviously, as we have seen some areas in southern Ontario uh, be put into hot spots, what are your thoughts as places like Durham and Halton uh, stay out of those hot spots? Uh, what's the message here? Well, we I don't know what the what the uh, rationale for either closures or or keeping people open um what we've asked government is provide us with the data provide us with the uh, justification for these closures and if there's anything we can do to change uh, what we're doing we'll be happy to do it the problem is we're just not seeing what the data is we're not seeing uh, where they think there's a problem so we can't do anything about it uh, at this point um, many people are asking about the data. Uh, what kind of data are you looking for? Um, because again, what we see is cases uh, cases are spiking up, and when cases start to spike up, uh, things go backwards. We start to close down again. So, um, is this just not basically a numbers game? If they if they're going up, we got to pull back. If they're leveling off or going down, uh, not so much. Well, I think it's more as what do you address? If the if the numbers were going up in restaurants, then for sure we we were all for um, more restrictions. We're not seeing that. When we talk to our members, we talk to uh, you know large chains that have tens of thousands of employees. They're not seeing the numbers. Uh, they're not seeing uh, infections in their uh, staff. They're not seeing uh, getting any confirmation from anyone that there's been. Uh, People in the restaurants that have have uh, trans, sorry, that have contracted uh, COVID. So we're not sure what what they're making these decisions based on. Um, if 
if the if the issue is another part of the economy, then go after that part of the economy. Don't go after us. Um, that being said, it is pretty much anything where crowds of people gather, any congregate settings, anything where uh, there are groups of people that are getting together, whether it's, you know, in hospitality uh, situations, whether it's in gyms, uh, that sort of thing. So do uh, you feel that restaurants are getting lumped into that because of the congregate setting, because it's, it's where large groups of people gather? Well, I would say it's not really large groups in a restaurant. You're spaced yeah. out. You're you're uh, you're being watched by by staff that is making sure that you're behaving. Um, you're uh, coming and going with masks on, uh, so it's a controlled environment, and I think that's the difference. It's not uh, it's not a wedding party. It's not um, it's not a party in your backyard. It's something that's a controlled environment that that can be safely done. What about demand? Now, uh, you know, obviously we saw these places open up as we went into stage three and such and, and indoor dining uh, permitted again, uh, albeit with strict protocol and such. Demand there, people still coming in or are you concerned that, you know, even if places are open, people are still a little on the fence on this? No, we saw people once the the reopening uh, came, people came back to the restaurants, people um, once you went into a restaurant once, you saw how responsible the operators and the staff were being, saw how much, uh, how many precautions they were taking, and people really felt, uh, felt safe, and they, they came back. So we did, we did see the numbers come back. Obviously, we couldn't have the same numbers because we didn't have the seating as, as before, but um, we definitely saw um, people come back to, uh, to indoor dining. We've certainly some, uh, seen some very creative uh, uh, ways of doing this and, and some neat things, whether it's a re- relaxing of some restrictions, um, you know, within the community or such, or patios or what have you. Uh, some pretty creative ideas on, on, on how to get uh, by in, in uh, the times of a pandemic. Are you concerned as uh, the cold uh, months arrive and, and, you know, not as much, uh, obviously, attention paid to patios and stuff when soon as the snow starts flying? How concerned are you once you lose the patio season uh we're very concerned and we've been looking at that since the well, early summer really is um are we going through a a false uh, recovery um we we had a great patio season in the summer and um it was extra long and municipalities allowed us to expand our patios and so it was a great thing throughout the summer but uh, we, we knew it was about to end uh there's only so much you can do with with uh, marquees and and heaters. Uh, the heaters are expensive to run, and uh, you know there there comes a point where people just don't want to be outside anymore. So yeah, uh, we do see the an end uh, coming to that. We'll try and extend it as far as possible, but uh, not everybody's going to be able to take advantage of outdoor dining, outdoor uh, patios. Obviously, you you know the season is coming, James, and, and what you are all heading into. How do restaurants? How are how's the industry preparing for winter? Well, we're doing whatever we can. I think a lot of people are are being as creative as possible. Um, we've seen the growth of meal kits from restaurants is, has been something that uh, some restaurants are are trying to get a little more revenue from. Uh, they've started to sell some groceries. Um, and obviously, uh, takeout and delivery is, uh, people are putting more and more, uh, um, confidence in that, hoping that, uh, that, that part of their business will grow. So, um, 
they're doing what they can, and uh, they'll continue to innovate, and maybe we'll see some other great ideas that we're, I'm not anticipating at this point. Uh, we've certainly heard the Premier talk about delivery services um, and, and the various uh, services that will go in and deliver food, which, you know, obviously is, I'm sure has been a savior during this time in, in some ways, but also uh, expensive. What about the commissions and such that they charge restaurants? Is that something that needs to be looked at? Uh, definitely. It's something we've been calling on for a long time, um, but it's especially critical now. Um, re- some some restaurants make less on on a dinner that's uh, delivered by a third party delivery than the the delivery company does. So that's that's a hard thing to get through. Uh, if you're paying a thirty percent commission, you might just you might not be making any money. And if more and more of your business is is on that side of it, uh, many places just don't think they can can uh, stay open. Um, you can't pay your your employees if you're not making any money. So uh, that's got to change. It's it's not sustainable. And hopefully, uh, we're working with the, all levels of government right now to see if there's something we can uh, can do to address that. So, James, is this campaign aimed at getting people to support, go back out, remind them that the restaurants are here and we need them? Or is this uh, so? Is this about getting people to come out and 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 support them, or is this about uh, is this more of a message to the politicians that says, "Hey, keep us open. We we don't want to be locked down again." Uh, well, it's both. I think on one hand, we want restaurant or we want people to realize how important restaurants are, whatever their favorite restaurants are. Uh, you know, we ex- we estimate that. Half of restaurants might not survive the pandemic. So if you think of your favorite two restaurants, one of them might not be there. So, um, yes, definitely uh, do whatever you can to support your local restaurants, but also let your voice be known. So tell the politicians that um, we think it's important that you support this industry. If this industry is going to take a take one on the chin for the betterment of the of society, then they need to be compensated for that. So um, people have a have a good voice, and uh, hopefully they'll lend it to us to get some more support. James Rylett's been with us, Vice President, Central Canada Restaurants Canada. James, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thanks a lot. You have a great day. You too. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.